This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 614, a conversation with Tom DeFalco. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 614. It's our conversation with Tom DeFalco. Although uh, those who've been uh, w- listening to the show for a while will know that this is not actually the first time I've chatted with Tom. It's actually the second time. Uh, we I think he was originally on episode 256 from, uh, I think, early 2013. So... Um, or 2015, sorry. So it's been like three and a half years since I've had him on the show. It was a, a real treat to be able to talk with him. I do want to thank some people from the Marvel Masterworks Forum who submitted questions. Uh, not everything was necessarily added or asked uh, specifically from the person, so sometimes I integrated into a question as we were kind of going through the process of having the discussion, and some things just kind of came up naturally. I do want to thank Mr. Raffles, uh, Mr. Articulate, uh, Shotzi, Richard63, um, as well as Eric Anthony of the Cave of Solitude podcast. Um, it was a really enjoyable interview. It was fun to have Tom back on the show. Sadly, uh, it sounded like this might be his last podcast for a little bit, a little while, which he mentions at the, at the tail end. Spoiler alert. Uh, but otherwise, we had a, a very fun conversation. We got to chat about Mark Gruenwald, about Ralph Macchio, um, what it was like you know, working at Marvel when he was editor-in-chief, what the, the general sense was, and uh, how much fun they had. And, uh, it, you know, I, I really enjoy, I'm a big fan of Tom's work. I say that kind of a lot throughout the interview, but um, it, it's, you know, it's true. Um, the stuff that I've read of Tom's it has had a huge impact on me as a comic book reader. Some of my favorite stories from when I was really kind of getting into comics, it was much more impressionable, uh, were his. Um, you know, I, I can, the Sinister Syndicate's first appearance was a, a big, you know, thing for me when I read it in a Marvel Tales issue in 93. Um, reading his take, his, um, Amazing Spider-Man 407 was when he kind of came back to writing the Spider-Man books, but it was actually Ben Riley, And I, that for years, I was like one of my favorite books. I just absolutely loved it. The artwork by Mark Bagley, the amazing writing by Tom. Um, so I'm, I'm just such a huge fan. I love A Next, Spider-Girl, uh, you name it, I've probably... Read it, read it, and loved it. I loved his Reggie and Me, which is a, his recent series for uh, for Archie. So we go in depth and we talk a, talk about a lot. When you've had a career like Tom, there's uh, so much we could talk about. We had a little bit of a limited time frame, but uh, I really enjoyed every minute I got to spend with Tom. And um, yeah, it's a shame. It sounds like he won't be doing some podcasts for a little while, but hopefully you'll be able to enjoy this amazing interview with the legendary Tom DeFalco. Uh, you can always email me at the show at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Tom DeFalco. Tom, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. That's great to hear. I'm excited to have you back. It's uh, I've said before on the podcast that uh, you were one of the, the first big guests I ever really had on the show um, back when I started doing interviews. And for so long, I've just been like, oh, i got to get Tom back because I had such a great time and it really gave me a lot of confidence to talk with other creators as well. But you were kind of the, the first kind of uh, big fish that I ever had on the show. So thank you for that. Are you saying I smell like a fish? Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, are you denying it? 
Well, let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, in the intervening time, so it's been about three and a half years since we uh, last first connected. Uh, I know you do a lot of interviews, so I don't expect you to remember it. I'm not going to quiz you or anything. But uh, I've had a lot of listeners ask, you know, if you get Tom back on, could you please ask these questions? So I thought I would just quickly ask you some listener questions before I kind of delve into some stuff that I've always wanted to ask about. Okay. So, Let's go for it. All right. So the first one we got here is from a, a listener who goes by the handle Mr. Raffles. And he, he just asked, given that he's a personal favorite creation of yours, what was the inspiration for creating the Black Fox? <laughs> um, I had uh, ordered a set of uh, animal cards that uh, basically, you know, described all sorts of different animals and, you know, their, ha- their habits and that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, I was reading them and, you know, because basically I read everything. <laughs> and, and uh, uh, you know, I uh, came across, the, you know, a black fox and I thought, ah, hey, that's not a bad name for a character. And, and decided to, uh, you know, I went from there. You, you notice that there's both black fox and silver sable in the same, yep. same issue. <laughs> Now, what, now, that character, though, I mean, obviously really, I guess, you know, spoke to readers. Readers liked the Black Fox. He was kind of a, a different type of character. What kind of inspired you to come up with the characterization in there? Because, I mean, it's got a cool name, but it's really more than that. Obviously, it's more about the, what makes that character live and breathe, and you really injected a lot of interesting life to him by giving him a kind of a different type of backstory. What was the kind of inspiration there? Well, um, you know, that I, I honestly don't remember at this stage of the game. I, I can tell you that any time I came up with a character, um, before I sat down and put him in the plot, I would work out a whole backstory, a whole history of him. I used to write a, a, a basic Bible for each character. Um, these things would run anywhere from five to ten or you know, 20 pages long. Uh, most of the time... <laughs> They would be, you know, five times longer than the character's appearance in the, in the actual comic book. <laughs> um, I, I felt that, you know, for comic book story, for, for any story to actually work, you had to really know your character intimately. So I would try to figure out a character long before I had to write them. I, you know, I, I would say at this stage of my life, I, I still do the same thing. Now, with the, with the Black Fox, so you cre- you kind of create this character Bible for yourself on who this guy is. When you start seeing the pencils come in from Ron, though, do you adapt it based on the visuals that he ends up kind of pairing with this image you had in your head? Um, not so much with Ron, because Ron and I would, would discuss these characters, um, you know, ad nauseum, uh, so that, you know, we both ultimately had the same character in mind and you know with Ron and you know Ron Pat Olive Herb Trimpey uh, you know all the guys that I worked with on a regular basis Ron Lim uh, Paul Ryan but by the time the character showed up you know it, it just looked like the character that was that was in my head you know or, or you know or the two of us were you know so in sync that by the time I saw the character, you know, I, I just accepted that that's how he, he had to look. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 
you know, sometimes when I was scripting, I, depending on how much time we had, sometimes I'd be scripting a comic book where it was just in layout form. So I didn't actually even see what the character looked like. <laughs> uh, um, you know, th- those were the days. Yeah. Well, so here's a question then. So obviously you mentioned some of your, you know, kind of your preferred or favorite collaborators that you worked with a lot. Was there any, and I'm not asking to name names in terms of artists, but were there any characters you created that um, just kind of came out visually looking different than was in your mind because you weren't working maybe with one of your kind of regular artists, but you kind of felt that uh, it actually improved on what was in your head and you actually ended up adapting it and changing it because the visual ended up being even better than you thought it could be? Um, That's a weird question. It, it's it's a it is a weird question. Most of the times when I asked for guys to draw it, you know anything that I had in my head, when it came out in, in the artwork, it was even so much better than what I had in my head. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've, I've just been a very lucky guy that uh, the artist I had was so much more talented than I was that they could make anything look good. <laughs> uh, you know, there was one time where I, I um, when I was writing, I think it was Amazing Spider-Man, and uh, I, I asked for these, um, uh, the story involved ninjas, so, we, we, you know, I was going to use the hand, and I described the hand and that sort of stuff, and the artist, the uh, I don't want to mention Steve Scrooge's name, so I won't. Uh, <laughs> des- decided to uh, create, you know, new costumes and new new in- new ninjas and put a, a different person in charge and that sort of stuff. And I remember looking at it thinking, "What the heck is this?" <laughs> uh, and then, you know, uh, since since the book was running late, I had no time to get it redrawn. I just had to go with it. That's that's fascinating because so like from where like me as a young reader when I started um, really reading Amazing Spider-Man on a regular basis it was literally the month after the Clone Saga and it was Amazing Spider-Man that you were writing and I remember the True Believers and I've always wanted to ask what made you create a new sect of the Hand and so it's fascinating to hear that it was kind of an accident because of the art. Yeah, yeah, I, you know I I'd even forgotten what I had called them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess every comic is someone's first comic. Isn't that how the saying goes? And that was definitely yep. true of, of that particular run. Like, that return to Amazing Spider-Man, obviously you had already been writing it when Ben Riley was Spider-Man, but when Peter you know, became Spider-Man again and you're writing Amazing Spider-Man, that's the Spider-Man I kind of really fell in love with and started reading on a regular basis. So a lot of that, that work that you did with the True Believers, with Electro, with Resurrecting Doc Ock, that's very near and dear to my heart as a reader because that's by Spider-Man. That's just what I think of. Well, you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad it all worked for you. I, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're in the trenches and, and you're you're looking at these things, saying, "Wait a minute, this is supposed to be the hand. What am I going to come up with?" <laughs> yeah, I hope I hope it makes sense to the readers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you know, I'm walking around thinking, "Oh man, that story was a disaster." And and you know, uh, you know, you as a reader are thinking, "Wow, it worked." <laughs> Do you find, I mean, have you heard a lot of that kind of disconnect where that you've heard throughout the years where you have worked on something that you were just like, oh, it could have been better, it wasn't my best, and then people are telling you it's it's their favorite or it's the thing that they really loved when they were younger? Like, does that happen often? That happens all all the time. Um, I 
when I look back on stories, what I think of is all, all the things that went wrong. <laughs> and I, um, you know, I, I wonder whether or not, you know, did, did this, was I able to pull it together? Did it, did, did it work? Um, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, writers are a cowardly and superstitious lot. <laughs> and, and, and we all, all, you know, are always wondering, you know, whether or not what we're doing is working. Mm. Um, when I was on Fantastic Four with Paul Ryan, um, we used to get such hate mail on that book. Oh, really? And, and, you know, every review talked about how terrible the book was. And um, when I go to conventions, fans would come to me and say, what's the matter with you? You know, what are you doing with those characters? Can't you ever give them a break? <laughs> and I thought, you know, and it's, can't you do an issue where nothing happens? And I thought, listen, a lot of things don't happen to them, but that's in the 30 days in between issues. <laughs> and, and, you know, and years later, I, I you know, I, 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 I thought what we were doing was working because every, every issue of the sales went up, which to me was a good sign. And, um, you know, years later, I, I, I talked to people and I said, oh, yeah, we love when you were doing the Fantastic Four. You know, it, it, it was just a, always exciting. We never knew what was going to happen next. <laughs> and, we, and, and we were, you know, we would, we would just, you know, had to buy each issue. And I said, really, you loved it then? Oh, then I hated it. <laughs> Why did you hate it then? Well, because I had to wait 30 days in between each issue. Well, that's funny. Now, speak, speaking of Fantastic Four, so, I mean, the idea that, you know, you, you put them through their paces, you did a lot to those characters. It's always been interesting to me that one of the first things you kind of did was you undid the, the marriage between Alicia and Johnny and kind of showed it was a scroll. Was that just something that always kind of stuck in your craw that that should never have happened, that marriage between uh, Alicia and Johnny, and that you, the first thing you wanted to do is kind of take that away? Um, no, I, you know, I, I, I thought it was... It, it didn't make sense to me when Johnny started to date Alicia. It just didn't make sense because Ben, you know, they always squabbled, but Ben was essentially his big brother. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't, you know, you know, Ben stuck on another planet really questioning himself. It just didn't strike me that Johnny's going to move in on his, on his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember a time where I was, um, uh, sitting somewhere with uh, Ralph Macchio and uh, Mark Grumwald and they were talking about it and saying oh yeah you know if we ever get the Fantastic Four we got to get rid of that 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 wedding and and um, you know we'll come up with an idea and they and they said well what if what if this wasn't uh, really Alicia it was a scroll and, and and they turned to me and said what do you think about that I said I'm not writing Fantastic Four I'm not thinking about it <laughs> And uh, um, a couple of years later, Ralph is editing the Fantastic Four. He asks me to do it, um, and uh, the book was was running kind of late. And says, "I'm, I'm going to need a plot in about two or three days. Can you, can you think you can come up with something?" And I said, uh, <laughs> "You know, it's not if I'm going to do it. I have to come up with something. It's not whether or not I I can come up with something." Mm -hmm. and, and I um, 
And I said to him, what about that old idea you had about Alicia being a scroll? And he said, I would love if you could do that. <laughs> and I said, all right, I'll see if I can figure out a way to make it work. And I had, and because of the uh, anal retentive writer that I am, I had to, you know, work out, you know, I think the f- five or six issues to figure out how the whole story because you can't start that and not know where you're going. <laughs> no, for sure, yeah. <laughs> so, so I had to figure out, you know, um, the, the whole plot line. You know, basically, the, you know, the major points. So I said, okay, we're going to introduce the scroll here. We're going to get people to like her. We're going to apparently kill her, and then, and, uh, you know, a couple of issues later, we're going to bring her back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I. Went to Ralph and I said, "Okay, here's the plan." He says, "I don't need, I need, don't need to hear the plan. Just give me the first issue." <laughs> <laughs> what what, so, what I've always enjoyed about a lot of your writing, and what it seems to be your approach in general, is that uh, you're very much about adding to the Marvel Universe or adding to whatever you're initially writing and not just subtracting. There's some writers who seem to, they like to take things away or kill characters off or, uh, you know, subtract. And it always just feels that for everything you do, you're always kind of adding something. So even in dissolving a marriage, you figure out a way that I'm adding something new to this universe, a new character we can play with, new elements. And I just always appreciated that about your writing, that it was always additive. Well, thank you. Uh, That's always been a conscious decision on my part. Um... It's I think whenever I take over as a series or doing anything, I think it's my job to add. Um, you know, they call us creative writers, so we're supposed to create and add things. Um, you know, any any I, I always get discouraged when somebody says, ah, "I'm going to take over the Fantastic Four. I'm going to bring back this old villain, this old villain, that old villain, and the next old villain." And I think, yeah, we've seen those stories already. Come on, do something new, do something exciting. Um, you know, but I, uh, yeah, that sounds like I'm knocking guys, but I don't mean to be knocking guys. No, no, I get, I get what you mean. I mean, even like as uh, as I talked about that Amazing Spider-Man run I liked in the '90s that you wrote. I mean. You know, you had a, a big electro story, and it was not, it was just like the telephone electro story that's going to just do something new with the character and make him more of a threat and make him more, like, you know, just more of something on the page that's going to add. And that was really something special because, again, the previous uh, writers had kind of taken electro down a few notches and really kind of taken him apart, and you kind of put him back together. And this is how you do electro, and this is how you make him exciting. Well, you know, I think, you know, every, every comic book should be exciting. Uh, I mean, you know, especially today, you're, you're spending what four dollars for a comic book. Yeah, that 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 thing should be, you know, balls to the wall excitement from page one all the way to the end. Uh, you know, things should be happening. You know, life should be a danger. You know, characters should be making decisions, and they should be sweating it out from page to page to page. And I. I I think that the pace of comic books really needs to pick up because the pace of everything else is picking up. True. That's absolutely a good point. Uh, Another listener question I had from Mr. Raffles again was, uh, when you came back to writing Amazing Spider-Man and to some extent Spider-Girl, was it harder writing a married Peter Parker? Because obviously previously you've been writing a single Peter Peter Parker. No, actually to my surprise it was easier to write a, a married Peter Parker because... 
just the fact that he was married added to his responsibility, added to his emotional burden. And and when he found out that, that his wife was pregnant, it adds, it just adds to the responsibility, adds to the emotional burden. And basically with Peter, you know, I know they have different ideas these days, but I look at, at Spider-Man and I think this is a series about responsibility. So any additional responsibility you can throw on this character's shoulder you know, just makes just makes for more interesting stories. Mm-hmm. When you first found out in, like, I guess, what, 86 or 87, when they were going to actually marry Peter Parker in the comics, was your initial reaction, this is a good idea, or was it kind of, I don't know about this? Well, my original plan when, when Ron Friends and I, uh, my, our original plan, when Ron Friends and I were on the book, we were going to have Peter ask Mary Jane to marry him, uh, marry him and then um, she was basically going to leave him at the altar. Uh, the old park of luck was going to kick in. Um, when I found out they were going to actually marry marry them, I thought, "Oh no, this is this, you know this is going to be a mistake." Um, but I was wrong. It worked. You know, to, sadly, I can be wrong on many an occasion. <laughs> you know, check my Super Bowl bets. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. I, I was wrong about that. I thought it worked. Um, another another listener question: um, who, who is your favorite member of A Next to both write and create? Um, yeah, that's a hard one because you know, you know, pick out your favorite child. <laughs> um, I, you know, Ron and I worked so so deeply on all all of those characters. To make sure that they all had, you know, distinctive histories, distinctive stories, I, I, I really can't, you know, uh, I, 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 it's so hard. I, um, the guy I got to know the most was J two because he had his own book, hmm. but uh, you know, Stinger. There was so much going on with Stinger and Thunderstrike and American Dream. I, yeah. I'm sorry, I can't. I, well, that, that's fair. I mean, that was, an, again, I, I was the prime age to kind of be reading those MC2 books when they first came out, and I absolutely loved every single one of them. Like, there was so much energy and vitality, and you got so much bang for your buck, and it was it was still fun stories. Like, there was obviously a sense of drama, but it was still fun as well, and I felt like, especially when I was reading a lot of comics at that time, fun felt like it was in short supply. Um, so you had action, but it was still a fun book. I, you know, I think uh, I think fun should never be in a short short supply. I I am often dis- distressed when I read current comic books uh, because there you know there isn't much fun in them and there isn't much story in them and you know and that distresses me. Was there another talking about you know having to pick your favorite children? So um, the, the the listener had another question about Anax, which is was there a favorite story in your run on Anax? Um. Yeah. You packed a lot in there. Yeah, we we we, we really we really did. I, I you know I think when they went to that alternate universe and and mm. you know Kevin got to see. You know, 
another version of his father. Um, and we got to see what happened to Captain America and that sort of stuff. I think, I, I don't remember what issues that, that was, but I think that, you know, that really had a lot of emotional impact. Mm. And we, we lost Crimson Curse. Um, you know, I think that one... Okay, that's that's a that's a damn good one. It was again, and what I liked about that story again is that you you were kind of you were building up to it the entire run. Um, you know that we were getting seeds of like what what had happened uh, to understand what happened to the old Avengers, and then again having that a kind of emotional crux there with you know Kevin seeing his dad, and also with yeah with Captain America was was an emotional, really good issue, or a series of issues I should say. Yeah, thank you very much. I you know, I, 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 yeah. So much of that when, you know, Cap, you know, turns his shield over to American Dream. Mm-hmm. You know, we we build for that stuff. We live for that stuff, Ron and I. Yeah. I keep hoping that someday we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get that all collected because, again, I was a big fan of it. I, I feel like these days, eventually, almost everything will someday get collected somehow. So I feel like that's got to happen at some point. And what was it like for you recently to see that when they, you know, started reprinting Spider Girl as these new, you know, complete collections? I, you know, uh, you know, I'm I'm very pleased. I, I hope it sold well enough for there to be a volume two. Um, I think that if there's anything you want to see collected or anything you want to see done, you should write Marvel a letter. Mm. And I'm not talking an email. I'm talking an actual physical letter. Uh, Send it to the editor-in-chief and just just write and tell them what you think because they get so few letters these days that each one has great significance. So any of your fans have anything they want to say to to Marvel, to DC, to Dark Horse, any of those companies, send them actual letters. They ignore emails. Mm. And, and they are not on social media. The editors have no time. They're working, you know, eight to, you know, ten hours a day. The last thing they do when they get home is turn on their computer mm. and, and see how, how much the fans hate them. <laughs> When, when you were an editor, I mean, what was that, that kind of like with, I mean, can you imagine having been an editor in this, in this kind of day and age where social media is what it is and, you know, every, every angry person can just immediately kind of dump what their feelings as opposed to people who actually had to kind of write out their feelings and express themselves and actually send off a letter? Um, yeah, it, it, it must be terrifying. You know, well, back in my day, a lot of times you'd go to conventions and people come up and say, I hate your work. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, I, I remember, you know, a, a large gentleman uh, came up to me when Ron Friends and I were just taking over Thor and said, I don't want you guys on Thor. Bring back Walt Simonson or I'm going to come get you. <laughs> and I said, listen, even if we want to bring back Walt Simonson, Walt Simonson, you know, left he decided he he was done and, and and left. You know he, you know it's not like he got fired. He quit, which which is you know, you know a creative person is on on a series for as long as he wants to be, and then you know in those days, and then he says, uh, you know I've had enough of I want to go do something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the companies, you know couldn't get guys to do things. Then can get them even. You know, to do th- even less today. Yeah. 
So we have a question from a listener about uh, your tenure as editor in chief. Um, and well, I, I actually, before I get to the question, one thing I wanted to ask you about is obviously last time we when we chatted, you talked about you were very proud of the Marvel Masterworks um, uh, line and that you kind of were a big part of creating that. And that's obviously something that's continued to this day and is still pretty healthy. Um, these days, we now also have in softcover the Epic Collections, which also aim to kind of collect all of you know the, the main kind of Marvel lines, uh, which is kind of a direct legacy of the Marvel Masterworks program as well. And in many cases, using the same files and the same restoration. How does that make you feel to see that kind of legacy and that people can still enjoy all these books that if you hadn't put together the Masterworks program, maybe that never really would have happened? Well, I don't know if I can take credit, but um, you know, I, I love all these books. I, I uh, a, a lot of the books of my youth, I love to get get them. Mm-hmm. I, I wish Marvel would would send me copies for free, but no <laughs> such luck. Uh, and it, you know, it's always a joy to you know flip through these things and you know and 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 just be exposed to you know the heroes of my youth. Do you find, I mean, when you do make convention appearances that, you know, people come up and have recently experienced your work because of these epic collections? Like, I know, um, actually, I think another podcast that you recently spoke to was The Cave of Solitude, and I know he had recently kind of been exposed to your, you know, Thor work because he was picking up epic collections, and he was really interested in the, in the format and the line. And so he kind of got exposed to stuff that he'd never read, which was a lot of your work on Thor. So do you find that you're getting kind of newer fans finally being exposed to this stuff? Um... You know, I, I go to so few conventions that I I, I, I never really noticed. Uh, you know, so certain people bring up the, the old comic books. Some mm-hmm. people bring up the trade paperbacks. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't really notice. I'm, you know, I, I have been a, a bit of a stiff uh, <laughs> when it comes to conventions. I think I'm going to. Two more this year, and then uh, there there is a chance I may be done. Um, but uh, you know, you know, Mark DeMattis always yells at me. You should go go to more conventions. <laughs> <laughs> he probably just wants to see you more. Uh, nah, I'm, I'm sure that's not it. He just <laughs> wants me. He just wants me to pay pay him the money I owe. Him. <laughs> So getting back to you being an editor-in-chief, um, at that time, during that kind of period, you also you, we saw the, the advent of, of more kind of um, different types of covers being used on comics. Do you find, how much credit or blame do you usually get for those? Um, yeah, I don't think I get any credit or blame for those things. No? No. I, 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 yeah, no. I think these days when people look at those covers, they they kind of enjoy them, and uh, you know people who don't enjoy them. You know, that's one of the few things that people don't come up and complain to me about. <laughs> one of the few things, right? Yeah. <laughs> When, when you took over as editor-in-chief, so you're following Jim Shooter, who obviously had a long tenure as well, what was it like to kind of be taking over from someone like that? Um, well, uh, you know, Jim had done a, I, I think, had done a terrific job setting everything up, uh, you know, setting up the framework and that sort of thing. You know, I I was a lucky guy. I, I my second in command was Mark Wormwald. 
eventually added Carl Potts and Bob Budiansky to it. I had great editors working for me. So I, I got to be a, you know, a useless slug. I got to you know, <laughs> sit at my desk all day, take naps, and everybody else did all the work. It was terrific. <laughs> what, um, what, is, what is your favorite Mark Grunewald story? My favorite Mark Grunewald story? <laughs> oh, man. Um, that's family friendly. Yeah, that's family <laughs> All right, the one I can think of off the top of my head because I, I, I was uh, I'm Ill, Ill prepared for that question. Okay. Um, every time I I had to take a trip, uh, Mark would uh, rearrange my comic book library. I had a I had a bunch of bookshelves with a bunch of comics on them, and I'd come in and one time it would be arranged all the books would be arranged alphabetically, <laughs> and one time I came in. All the books were arranged reverse alphabetically. <laughs> One time by you know character alphabetically. You know he, he, he'd come up with a new way of doing arranging the books every time I, I went on a trip, and I used to go on a lot of trips. Uh, and you know, once I realized what he was doing, maybe my second trip or something like that, I, I would walk in. You know, close the door, look at them, figure out his method. And then sometime later on, I would call him to the office. We'd be talking and I'd say, uh, you know, and I would use an example for a book. And then I'd reach over and just pull out the book and, and, uh, and, and show him the example. But that was my way of saying is, I know what you're doing, <laughs> without actually saying anything to him. And, uh, and you know, and we used to do that shenanigans on a regular basis. <laughs> um, I, I just thought of another time. One, one time we were at a convention, I believe, in Oakland, California. And I, I had a bunch of meetings. And, after, you know, after the... The uh, meetings, I, you know, hit the bar for a couple of hours, and I come up to my, my hotel room about, I don't know, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, and the elevator doors open up, and I see this giant sign. Tom DeFalco is signing autographs in room with my room number and then a, a, an arrow. 24 hours a day, just knock. <laughs> so, naturally, I ripped that off the wall walk down, get into my, my room, turn on the lights, and I realize that all of my underwear is taped outside the window. <laughs> um, now, I'm not going to tell you how I got Grunewald back, but I did get him back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I never... I never acknowledged what he did. I still don't know how he got into the room, but... Uh, you know, and, uh, that's a pretty good story. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess it sounds funnier than it was at the time. True, I'm sure it was not nearly as funny at the time. But <laughs> um, now, speaking of like you, uh, jokesters in the the bullpen or that you kind of worked with, um, I think Ralph Macchio has a bit of a, a reputation for being a bit of a, a prankster as well. Do you have any good Ralph Macchio stories? Uh, Again, family friendly. Uh, yeah, uh, 
So one time I'm sitting in my office and Mike Hobson, the publisher, comes in. Uh, it's around lunchtime. He comes in. He's got this, his face full of fury. Mike Hobson almost never got angry. And he looked at me and says, do you know what those idiots are doing down, down the hall? And I looked up and I said, what idiots? At which point he burst into laughter and I had this couch and he falls on the couch and he just sits on the couch and and, and he's choking with laughter for about 10 or 15 minutes. And I'm just sitting there waiting for him to calm down. I said, okay, Mike, what happened? And he finally gets it out that Ralph Ma Ralph Macchio and Carl Potts have a fishing pole. Now, we're on the 10th floor of the building <laughs> and have this fake $100 bill, um, which is, you know, twice the size of an – twice, five times the size of a regular $100 bill. So, you know, everybody would know it was a fake one. Mm -hmm. They tied it with fishing line, and they're casting it down, down to the street <laughs> and reeling it up as people are chasing after it. Uh, <laughs> You quite the crew there. Uh, yeah, yeah. So when when you're working again, when you're EIC, um, was again what was the kind of the vi the vibe in the bullpen? Because I mean, obviously, stories have been told about what it was like working with Shooter, but you know what what was if you had to kind of have an idea of what what you were trying to kind of bring back or what kind of feeling that you wanted to have in the offices, was it that people could kind of get away with stuff and that there was kind of a, a lighter atmosphere or what did you kind of instill in your workplace? Well, we had, you know, two things, you know, we worked hard. Uh, we had a lot of comic books. We, we were increasing publishing, you know, the publications and, and guys would be working there just ridiculous hours. So our rule was we're going to play hard and we're going to work hard. And, and, and we did both. When, when we played, we played very hard. We, you know, we would have, uh, you know, water pistol fights, you know, around the bullpen. <laughs> First, you make sure all the artwork is away. Uh, you know, the artwork is, is safe and secure. And, um, and then we'd go like maniacs. So we, we play hard, we worked hard. And, uh, you know, at 7, 8 o'clock at night, I'd, I'd be, you know, heading out, you know, uh, having had enough, because I, I had to get home and, and, and put in my couple of hours of writing. I, I'd leave at 8 o'clock at night, and guys in the bullpen would still be either, they'd either be working hard or they'd be playing hard, one, one way or the other. It's a pretty good atmosphere to have. Yeah, it was you know we were we were a great family. Um, the bullpen guys still get together on a regular basis, they, and they even invite me to come along. So you know, uh, we we all still get together, and we all still like each other. They know you can't fire them anymore, right? <laughs> I can't fire them anymore. <laughs> I didn't fire them then either. Come on. <laughs> Um, a, a listener question that came in was, uh, which is kind of interesting, is um, you were there at the, near the end or end of your EIC tenure. You have Toy Biz kind of coming on the scene and becoming part of, of Marvel and being involved in some of their product. What was that kind of experience like to, as Toy Biz kind of became involved with Marvel? Um, I don't even, you, you know, uh, it's I don't remember that, you know, it. it 
they didn't really bother us or anything. I was so used to working with Hasbro and Mattel and all the other companies that, you know, toy, you know, toy biz didn't get involved with the comics. Okay. Uh, another question, and this is more a question that came, kind of came up of someone wondering how much Wikipedia is correct or not, uh, because, you know, the Internet's never wrong, um, which was just a question of how involved you were with the creative uh, to create the backstory for Transformers and G.I. Joe when Marvel was working on the properties. I was, you know, I, I was in, in charge of the G.I. Joe project and was very involved, but Larry Hama did all the real work, all the heavy lifting. Anything, you know, creative came from Larry Hama or Archie Goodwin. Archie came up with the Cobra Commander and um, Cobra Command. Um, but, you know, most of the work was just Larry Hama. And, uh, you know, uh, it is hard to praise Larry Hama enough. Hmm. Uh, he, is, he is one of the creative dynamos of our industry he, he is a great artist a great writer a, a great conceptualizer you know I just got to sit back and be in awe um, uh, Transformers I came in at you know kind of the very end just to futz with some things uh, most of that was Bob Budiansky mm. and uh, I, 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 Jim Jim Shooter was involved. Um, Bob Budiansky, you know, those guys did, did, did most of the stuff. And like I said, I, I just came back in, in the end to just the futz and stuff like that. What was your take on like when Marvel was so involved in doing licensed product? Did you think that was, you know, good or bad, or did you think it kind of diluted what what they could do with their other books in terms of the overall publishing? Or what was your kind of take on some of those licensed properties? Because you don't see that as often anymore, at least not for Marvel. Um, I, I thought it was very good because, you know, part of their deal with uh, Hasbro is they were going to do television commercials on the comic books. And that had never been done before. And the direct market had always been saying, come on, you got to, you know, why, why aren't you doing TV advertising? Why aren't you doing TV advertising? I thought, hey, we're going to do TV advertising. And they guaranteed us, you know, like a million dollar ad buy for the first issue which I thought was terrific. They even went over that. Hasbro was fabulous to deal with. Um, and they, they're a bunch of great guys. And um, I got to see TV advertising for comic books. And I can tell you that is just not cost effective. No. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we got to actually, you know, see it. Because I thought, hey, you know what? If this works and if this is very cost effective, then maybe we can convince the company to do advertising for Spider-Man comics, advertising for Fantastic Four comics, you know, the X-Men. Um, and it was a worthwhile experiment. Now, I ended up having a lot of fun working with the Hasbro guys. Like I said, you know, they, they, were, they, they were great guys. And there were, you know, whole generations of, of, of kids who grew up that, they came to comics because of G.I. Joe, because of Transformers. I, I realized at one point uh, that, you know, half my assistant editors, their first book was either a G.I. Joe or a Transformer comic book. Oh, wow. That's, well, that's pretty incredible reach. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I always think about, like, how, how do younger people get into comics now? Because 
I, I'm not even sure how it happens because, like, I I remember because I was at a grocery store and there was a spinner rack and I saw a comic and I liked it and I you know picked it up and or I'd be at a corner store, but that doesn't really that experience doesn't exist for anymore for anybody because the direct market is just where you go. So unless you kind of know the, what you're looking for and that you want a comic, I don't know how kids really experience it in the same way. Besides, obviously, seeing you know cartoons or movies, but how do they actually physically get, end up with a comic book in their hands? It's a lot harder. Yeah, and. And the comic books today are not as accessible uh, because all of them are part X of, you know, how many other parts. And, and, and sometimes these comic books move so slowly, you, you know, you get a chapter and it, you know, doesn't really progress the story much. So if, if, if that's your first comic book, what, what's going to compel you to ever pick up another one true you're not getting a complete story like you did back in the day like again a lot of those comics that i would grew up on were still a complete story like you'd have dangling plot threads but like you got the story you had a beginning middle and end and i do feel like that is something very much lost yeah and um and i i know that a lot of writers today they would really struggle if they had to do a complete story in one issue I remember at one point somebody called me up and said, we're going to do a Christmas story. We'd like you to do it. There's a problem with it. And I said, okay, what's the problem? Well, you can't continue it. It can't be part of it. And I said, yeah, I don't consider that a problem. What's the problem? (laughs) (laughs) What's what's the shortest story you've ever had to write in terms of page count? The shortest? Yeah. Uh, A one-page story or maybe a half-page story. Is that with Archie or with Marvel or who was it, who did it uh, with? Archie. Archie. Yeah. I, I'm always curious about. I mean, obviously, like it, it's a testament to your versatility as a writer that you can kind of go in and it doesn't matter if it's 22 pages, 10 pages. You always seem to be able to to deliver. How do you account for that versatility in your writing that you're able to think that way and adapt to page count? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's to me, that's just the craft. You figure out how much space you have and you construct accordingly. You know, I I would do five-page stories with an A story, a B story, and a C story in it. Um, (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, I I don't, you know, I don't know how, (laughs) how I do it. I just know that you look at how many pages you have and... And then you f- figure out how much story can fit in there. And then you, you plot for you know five pages more, and then you cut out <laughs> everything <laughs> just to make sure that it moves faster. <laughs> um, in, in the intervening time since we've, we've, we've last spoken, you worked on Reggie and Me for Archie. What was, in general, the experience of working on that book and being able to kind of do a different type of story? Oh, that, 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 was, a, that was a blast. I got to work with a great artist, uh, Sandy Jarrell, and... And we just had a great time with that. I um, I, I looked at the, the challenges. You know, how do you make a, an unlikable guy the, the hero for five page, for five issues, and um, and yet let him still be the unlikable guy throughout it? Um, and then the answer was, you have his dog as the narrator because this dog loves him. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you uh, you know kill off the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we, you know, 
I don't want to spoil it in case you haven't read it. Uh, and we had a nice, good, uh, emotional, you know, five-part story. For sure. Each one was a complete issue in itself, but you had them all together. You know, a, a nice, a nice story that you know I thought you know worked well, and I, I had a blast doing it. I love working for the Archie guys. Well, I was going to ask, how did they kind of approach you to kind of write that book? They called me up and said, hey, would you like to do Reggie and me? And I said, and I said yeah, sure. When, um, when you write something like Archie, like, and obviously you have worked for Archie at the beginning of your career as well, what's what's kind of like your, your favorite character to write when you're writing an Archie book? Um, my, my favorite Archie character, uh, you know, has always been Jughead. And I think that goes back to my early days working with uh, this artist, Sam Schwartz, who uh, just uh, just an amazing guy. We worked on the Jughead book together and just had a blast um, doing all sorts of crazy slapstick nonsense. Um, I, I found that uh, with the Reggie and me story, I, you know, I really ended up having an affection for Reggie. And, and I had an affection for Big Moose, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd love. They're all fun characters. They're, they're all fabulous characters. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because like Archie characters. I mean, everyone kind of knows who they are and how they operate, and yet there's always still something kind of still. It's both familiar and exciting, but also you know there's there's elements of new. Does that make any sense whatsoever? It, it makes perfect sense because when you're adding to the characters, because I and I, I, I think I. I in the Reggie and me thing, I introduced this to Boom, to to Moose's family, and um, you know his, his little brothers and, and uh, his sisters who, who all look up to him. And uh, I, I thought, you know, hey, c- come on, we're gonna we're gonna learn something new about Big Moose. Um, and, uh, and and the fact that he's he likes artwork and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but like you said, I like to add things. For sure, I know we're we're running short on time. So another listener question was uh, that you had a collaboration with Steve Ditko on Machine Man. How was it like to work with him? And were the stories full script or Marvel method? The stories were Marvel method. Uh, I'd say, you know, almost every story I did it for Marvel was Marvel method. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Steve was a real pleasure to work with. I uh, remember when they uh, assigned the book to me. The uh, the editor Denny O'Neill uh, said to me, "Was you know, Steve Ditko wants to read the first plot before he decides whether or not he's going to stay on the book." And I thought, "Okay, well, <laughs> I guess we're going to get a new artist." But uh, but Steve read the plot. He, he enjoyed the plot, and and we enjoyed working together. And uh, I. Uh, I, I, you know, I've heard stories about Steve being a, a recluse and all sorts of other things, but I always saw him as a very a, a sociable, you know, wonderful gentleman, mm-hmm. um, a very sincere guy, a guy who, you know, he he felt that the, the work spoke for him, so he never wanted to discuss the actual work. We used to have 
all sorts of you know crazy conversations and discussed you know everything under the sun except I don't think we ever talked about comic books (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is you know a lot of the guys in the field when we get together (laughs) we don't talk about comic books we talk about all sorts of other things oh for sure when when you write when you were writing that first plot, like how intimidating was that to be like, or was it intimidating at all just to know that you know Steve Ditko is going to read this plot and you know if he likes it we'll work together. Like what what would that feel like going in? I you know I I think I was more intimidated about you know writing a Machine Man plot than I was about you know worrying about Steve Ditko. I just assumed that. <laughs> That Ditko was going to look at this and say, "Yeah, this guy's a bum. I, I don't want to work with him." <laughs> and uh, so, so I just, you know, focused on trying to come up with the the, the best story I could. I, I, and I'm always, you know, I, I I'm always nervous when I start a new new series. Even today, I'm I, I'd be nervous starting a new series, whatever the series was. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna let you, we're gonna let you go, but the, I, I had to ask. This is a question from a listener, but I always think about it as well. Which is, uh, when can we expect you and your partner in crime, Ron Friends, to reunite for another great adventure? Um, whenever any company asks us, <laughs> uh, when it comes to comics, Ron is still he's, he's still in there slugging at the trenches. He works for a company called Sid Comics now. Mm-hmm. He's drawing a comic book called The Blue Baron, so he's still. He's still there. As as for me, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing a, uh, a Red Sonia uh, story. I think it's a. Oh, I can't even remember how many pages it is. <laughs> more, I did the plot. A, it's more I did than a, one, the, right? Yeah, <laughs> I did the did the plot a while ago, and that you know, uh, I, I look at every comic book story as if it could be my last. Um, so that that may be my last, unless unless somebody asks me to do, you know, do something else that uh, intimidates me or challenges me or makes sound, you know, just strikes me as interesting. Was it fun working uh, on Red Sonia? Yeah, uh, it was a lot of fun because uh, I'd worked on Red Sonia many years ago, and it was it was nice to touch base with the character. Um, I mean, obviously, you're you're most well known for superhero work, but if you could write. Any other genre that wasn't just superheroes, what genre would you kind of gravitate towards? Um, probably, you know, uh, probably sword and sorcery. What would be your sword, your sword and sorcery kind of Bible? Like, what would you be most looking to, not emulate necessarily, but like kind of have that similar vibe? Oh, you know, the Conan stuff, the Robert E. Howard stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I love that stuff. I get stuff I grew up with, you know, as a kid. That, you know, I'm, I'm I'm still a comic book geek. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I still love all the characters that that I loved as a kid. Um, you know, all, all the you know the comic book characters, the pulp characters. Yeah, you know, I, I look at all this stuff as as just a lot of a lot of fun. So. Whenever I get the chance, I, uh, you know, I, I indulge my stupidity and, <laughs> and and jump right in. Um, you know, uh, like I said, I, I look at every comic book story as my last. This podcast is probably going to be my last podcast for for the foreseeable future. 
Oh, really? I think, did, I, did I ruin you for them? Is that why? No, no, no. <laughs> no, I think that uh, I've... Um, I was talking to somebody recently and thought, you know what? I, I, I should stop talking about my past. So I'm going to take a, take a breather on that for a while. That's fair. Uh, you know? I mean, yeah. as someone who likes hearing your stories and, you know, again, like likes hearing about your craft and how you approach it and, there, and, and hearing about the specific books you've worked on in the past, like, I'll be sad to not be able to hear more of your stories, but I understand it as well. Yeah, it's, you know, it's time to concentrate on doing some other stuff. That's fair. Well, Tom, thank you so much for uh, for spending an hour with us today. And if this is the last podcast you do for a good while, then uh, hopefully people can uh, you know enjoy that. And uh, it'll be sad that we don't get to hear more from you for a little while. But hopefully, when you, you come back with something even more exciting, hopefully, you take it easy, Adam. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank and you so it, much. And to all the readers, thanks for being there. Excellent. Thank you so much again. Have a great evening. You too.